God, we're gathered here under uh, your name. We come uh, for no other reason at best than to worship you and to acknowledge your incredible glory and your incredible grace that you have displayed in magnificent fashion through your son, Jesus. I pray that you would make us your faithful people when we're tempted to live as if there are other things that are better, when we're tempted to live with other priorities and other things at the top of our lists and the top of our plates. I pray that you'd give us a deeper and a stronger love for you, that we would treasure you above anything else in the whole world. In short, I pray that you'd help us to see who you are, That's what we need this morning. Would you please teach us who you are, teach us of your glory and grace so that we would love you more than anything and be faithful to serve you as your people. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Uh, One of the fun things about growing up in Alaska is that you get to come across some uh, very interesting people. Uh, One such colorful character lived uh, about a quarter of a mile from uh, my in-laws, from Emily's parents, Uh, They lived kind of close to the end of a sort of a twisting dirt road. And so to get to uh, the Bauer residence, you had to pass by this certain man's uh, property. And uh, one of the things that you would notice if if, uh, the proprietor of the company, of the the property, uh, was outside during the summertime was his uh, rather unusual attire. It, it, It was exclusively a Speedo swimsuit. Nothing else. Uh... We're not talking about, like, shorts here, swim trunks like that. We're talking about brief-style Speedo underwear. I I passed by his house and saw him outside dozens and dozens of times as I went to Emily's house, and every single time he was outside in the summer, there was the only thing I ever saw him wearing was a Speedo swimming suit. I assume he was also wearing shoes, but I didn't want to look too closely to kind of verify that, but... So he uh, quickly named, quickly earned the nickname Speedo Man, uh, and that's how we came to know him. But, but Speedo Man's property had much more to display than just its scantily clad uh, owner. There was also a junk car that was kind of parked parallel to the street, right next to the uh, street. And, you know, that's not such an unusual thing. A lot of people end up, for one reason or other, having a, a junk car in their yard. But, but Speedo Man was kind of going to take it to the next level, and, and he ended up with a couple of mannequins somehow, and he would actually create different scenes in this car. And uh, My in-laws actually took a picture at one point, but and I, I, I hesitated to show it because I thought, you know what, I don't want to give people nightmares. Like, seriously, it'd be some weird stuff. One time it had a, kind of a mask on it, it was right outside the window, kind of looking out at the street at you. And So if you didn't know what was going on with this man, it, you, the first-time uh, viewer would really kind of get caught off guard and really be until they realized it was not a real thing. But, but Speedo Man was not going to be uh, limited to his own property in this, so he took it upon himself to build a speed bump in the gravel road outside of his yard. Apparently, there were people that were just driving by too quickly past his house. One can only imagine why they would want to go so fast past this beautiful property. So he went out there with a shovel and with a the bucket of water with a hose and, and dug out his own speed bump. He wanted everyone to be able to kind of get a good look at this uh, beautiful property that he'd been developing. And the house itself uh, displayed this giant banner for the Alaska Brewing Company. And uh, aside from that, there are all sorts of different knickknacks spread here and there, little pieces of junk, junk that he uh, undoubtedly kind of had positioned there as different objets dart in his uh, yard. And then for me, the crowning touch of the whole scene was a later addition. It wasn't there in the early years, but, but as time went on, he finally got this crowning uh, moment, which was this uh, nearly complete skeleton 
slash rotting carcass of a caribou that he had sort of carelessly tossed up onto his roof that was kind of uh, precariously perched there to adorn the uh, dwelling and the property. I'm not kidding. Like, you probably think I'm joking here. That's why I was kind of tempted to show you a picture, but again, I didn't want to scare you off here. I'm not actually, uh, I'm not exaggerating this. I exaggerate sometimes, but I'm not exaggerating here. This is actually what this guy's house was like. And I drove past the property hundreds of times, uh, especially as I started dating Emily and kind of had more interest in going to the Bauer household. I drove past this place hundreds of times, and, and there was always this mixture of, of wanting to kind of avert your eyes and just go past and kind of a, a re- repulsion, but at the same time, so sort of this weird fascination, and you kind of want to look and see, well, what's, what's next on this man's property? What does he have uh, set up for a scene now? You really should go to see Alaska sometime. There are beautiful people there. <laughs> what do you do with a neighbor like Speedo Man? What do you do with a guy like this? If this is your neighbor, what do you do with him? Today we're getting to the topic of neighbors and friends in the book of Proverbs to see uh, what God's wisdom is when it comes to these relationships with these who are closest uh, around us. So this summer we're spending our time looking at the book of Proverbs together and trying to gain God's wisdom for all different areas of life. And, and we've looked at uh, husbands and wives, we looked at parents and kids, these, these family relationships. Now we're going to move from there to the next uh, wave of relationships. What does it mean to, to live with those around you, to live with neighbors and to live with friends? Uh, what does it mean to live wisely in relationship with other people? We're going to break it down into two sections here. We'll look at what uh, Proverbs says about wisdom in regards to friends and then in regard to neighbors. And this is a little bit of an artificial distinction here because Proverbs actually often uses the same word uh, in Hebrew to refer to both of them. Uh, It can cover kind of the close friendship relationships and it can also cover just kind of uh, the people you meet in the course of your life, people who live near your neighbor. Uh, But nonetheless, even though it's a little bit of an artificial distinction, it can be helpful for us to see uh, what Proverbs is calling us to. So friends and neighbors. Let's look at uh, what Proverbs has to say about friends first. And by the way, you can turn to Proverbs if you want. We'll be, again, jumping back and forth a lot because that's how the the book of Proverbs is kind of written as a collection of wisdom sayings. So we'll kind of see what it has to say here, see what it has to say there to try to get a a sense for the whole scope of what Proverbs is saying. I don't have a page number to direct you to, but you can just kind of go to the middle of your Bible and it'll be right there, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. So let's look at what Proverbs says about friends. Uh, As on many topics, Proverbs presents a polarity here. There are good friends and there are bad friends. And living wisely means being able to know the difference between them and to uh, choose wisely. So we start with Proverbs 12, 26. The righteous choose their friends carefully, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. In other words, who you spend time with matters, who you choose as your closest friends and advisors. This, this has an impact on you. It influences you. And the word friend here is, is not the more casual word that could be translated neighbor. This is specifically about a close friendship. These are the people that, that advise you. So, of course, you have to choose them wisely. And and that means that the issue here isn't that you can't spend time with people unless they seem to be really good, uh, moral, upright kind of people. If you look at the ministry of Jesus, you see that's not what he did. He spent lots of time with people that that made the good, nice people kind of raise their eyebrows and think, well, what is that guy doing? The point here is that taking the wrong people as our closest friends, our closest advisors, is foolish, and it will lead to harm. It will draw you away from God. So we can see Proverbs 13.20, how this plays out. Walk with the wise and become wise, for a companion of fools suffers harm. 
In other words, who you spend time with is who you end up becoming. They have a strong influence on you, and it'll determine whether you're going to walk in God's wisdom or walk in the path of foolishness. And of course, you've seen this. You've seen this in your own life. There are lots of people who choose their friends poorly, and they end up suffering as a result of it. The Bible has examples of it, too. There's a, there's a good example in 1 Kings 12. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, uh, assumes the role of king of Israel. And, and this is what happens. The people tell him, listen, your father was taxing us really heavily. Would you please offer us some relief? So first, King Rehoboam goes and consults the elders who served uh, under his father, Solomon. So this is what he asks them. He asks them, well, how would you advise me to answer the people? This is verse 7 of 1 Kings 12. They replied, if today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. But here's the crucial verse. But Rehoboam rejected the advice the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with them and were serving him. This is what they say. These people have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Now tell them, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scores you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. So this is the response he gives. He, he ignores the, the wise advice of the elders who served under Solomon, and, and he follows the advice of his apparently really foolish young friends. And this is what they tell him. And so Israel responds by saying, well, what share do we have in David? What part do we have in Jesse's son? To your tents, Israel, let David take care of himself. And this was the, the start of the downfall for Rehoboam. And God's kingdom ended up splitting into two from here. Israel was split into two, to the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, starting right here with this foolish decision. In other words, the people ha that you have around you, the one whose advice you listen to, they are the ones that have an impact on whether you're going to take a road of wisdom and following God or foolishness that will lead to your ruin. Your close friends matter. Wise friends help you become wise, but foolish friends are going to lead to your downfall. So the point is, choose your friends wisely. As we look at the scope of what Proverbs says about friendship, we can start to see some of the reasons for this. Among them is the fact that the wrong kind of friend is unreliable. So look at Proverbs 20, verse 6. Many claim to have unfailing love, but a faithful person who can find? See, you need friends who are going to stick with you through anything. You need someone who's going to be reliable here, but, but bad friends, the wrong kind of friend, they're, they're unfaithful, they're unreliable, and they're not going to stick with you through anything. When, when times get hard, they're going to abandon you and reject you. That's because a lot of people are, are friends with people for wrong reasons. So we look at 19, verse 4, and then verse 6, a couple different reasons that people might be attracted to people and become friends with them. 19, 4, wealth attracts many friends, but even the closest friend of the poor deserts them. Verse 6, many curry favor with a ruler, and everyone is the friend of one who gives gifts. In other words, people are self-interested. They're self-absorbed. They cling to people they think they can get something good out of, and they kind of feign friendship. But that's not true friendship. That's, that's a self-absorbed friendship. And this is the really, really the issue when it comes to the wrong kind of friends. Bad friends are self-absorbed. They're not in it for the good of the other, for their friend. They're in it for the good of themselves. And when something goes wrong and threatens the good for themselves, they're out of there. They're done. The wrong kind of friend thinks of their own desires, not of the good of the other. So this is what a bad friend looks like. But even as we see the bad friend here, there is still hope in the book of Proverbs for a good friend. So we can look at Proverbs 18.24. This shows both sides of it. One who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin, but 
there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. So what characterizes a good friend? What makes for a good friend? We can start to see in chapter 17, verses 17. This is a crucial element of what it makes a good friend. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for a time of adversity. See, this is the inverse of a bad friend, right? The wrong kind of friend has, has no reliability, no faithfulness. They're not going to stick with you through things. But the right kind of friend, a good friend, a true friend, sticks with you through the hardest of times. So you and I need friends like that. We need people who will stick th- with us in the good times and in the hard times because we need people to walk alongside us and to help carry our burdens. We need people who will stick with us as we walk through our worst moments, as we walk through deep waters. Because these kind of friends can point us back to the gospel when we forget, when we're tempted to to stray in the path of foolishness, to kind of shake our hand at God at whatever circumstances that we're facing and walk down that road away from him. When we're walking down a dangerous road, we need the right kind of friends who are going to be faithful to us and walk with us through that and point us back to God's faithfulness and be able to tell us, no, God really does love you. He really is faithful. This is what we know of God and calling us back to the truth of who God is. That's the kind of friends we need. And, of course, the right friend is not just going to only say nice things to you. So we could look at Proverbs 27.6 and, and see another key here. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. In other words, a friend is sometimes going to wound you. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but, but the wounds of a friend are calling you out. Sometimes you need to be challenged because of your wrong thinking or your wrong behavior. And a good friend, motivated by love, is going to call you out on that. But you know that because they love you, they want your good. That's why wounds from a friend can actually be trusted. They're not just trying to give you a hard time. They're not trying to hurt you. They're trying to uh, instill good in you, trying to bring you back to the, the path of life. So correction, motivated by love and expressed by a true friend, is a much needed part of life. Because all of us are always in danger of straying to the path of foolishness. We need godly friends who can keep us on the right track and to remind us, to wound us when we need to be wounded because they love us, bring us back to correction. And this brings us to one of the more uh, famous Proverbs in the whole collection, Proverbs 27, 17. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. And this reminds us that, that living in God's wisdom is not an isolated kind of event. Living by God's wisdom is a community effort. Because you and I are not designed to live alone, to walk this path alone. I mean, God gave us the church as a great gift. The community of believers is given to us because we need each other desperately. We cannot walk this path of obedience to Christ alone. We are called together as a community to walk in this. I love the, the knife sharpening kind of analogy in this verse. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Because if you've ever worked with knives, you know that the sharpest knife in the world is going to get dull over time. And we were given a set as a wedding present eight years ago, and, and through eight years of use, they became really dull. And, and I, you know, ours came with a sharpening steel, but it turns out I'm miserable and worthless with no sharpening steel. So for eight years, we, we used those knives day in and day out, and they never really got sharp. Until it got to the point where this winter it was like cutting through a tomato. It felt like you were using a garden hoe to try to get through the thing. You might as well use a fork to try to separate the tomato. It was just miserable. The knives were not sharp at all. They're totally dull. So finally we had them sharpened the right way and now they're great. And you can kind of cut through them and say, okay, that's what a knife is meant for. 
But that's what good friends do for us. We become dull over time. But the right friends are going to sharpen us and keep us from ruin. This is what makes the difference between King Rehoboam, the king we just looked at, Solomon's son, and his more famous grandfather, King David. King Rehoboam had the wrong kind of advisors, and he listened to the wrong people. At a crucial point in his life, a turning point in his reign, he listened to the wrong people and led to his ruin. But David, at a crucial point in his life, was corrected by a true friend, someone who could point him to the truth of God at a really difficult situation. So David had done something terrible. He had taken another man's wife and gotten her pregnant and then made sure that that man died in battle. Murder and adultery. A terrible thing. But he was just kind of living his life as if everything was fine. So God's God's prophet Samuel goes and confronts him about it. And many of you know this story. He he tells them this story about a man and sheep and all these things. and, And David gets really angry. He says, the man who did that deserves to die. And Samuel turns and says, yes, that is true. And you are that man. And David heard it. Wounds from a friend can be trusted. See, this is the difference between Rehoboam and and David. Rehoboam's listening to the wrong people. He's got the wrong friends, the wrong close advisors, and it leads to his ruin, his downfall. But David had advisors who could point him back to God's truth, to wound him when he needed to be wounded. And the result was repentance and forgiveness. The right kind of friends are faithful. They're always there for us, no matter how bad things get, no matter how difficult they are. And friends sharpen us and guide us and direct us to the path of life, the path of God's wisdom. So really the difference between a good friend and a bad friend is the difference between life and death. There's a huge stakes in friendship here. You've got to choose the right friends over the wrong friends or it will lead to your ruin. So in practical terms, how do we actually get friends like that? How do we get the right kind of friends Uh, Pastor Travis sent me a link to a short article this week called uh, Friendship That Matters. And by the way, if you don't know this, uh, Travis is about the best resource person I know. If you're ever looking for how the gospel applies to a different area of life, go see him. He hasn't read all the books, he hasn't read all the articles, but he can get you the right articles so fast. Seriously, go go talk to him after the service. But this article is great because it, it kind of raised the stakes for what friendship is about. Not kind of a superficial level but really deep, actual friendships that can sharpen you, where, where iron sharpens iron, actually happens. And it, it suggested, uh, it gave an example of five different rules uh, for meaningful uh, friendship, friendship that matters, that can actually sharpen us like this. Uh, these are the five rules. One, we can ask anything, no holds barred. Now that's a hard one for most of us, right? Because we have a lot of things that we don't really want anyone to ask us about because we're either embarrassed about them, we're ashamed about them, we just don't want to talk about them. We'd rather just kind of cover that up and not talk about them. But this is true friends, your, your closest friends. You have to be able to do this. You can ask anything, no holds barred. Two, if you answer, you must tell the truth as much as you know it. In other words, it doesn't do any good to be able to ask about anything if you're not going to be a truthful person. You need people in your life who can ask you the hard questions, and then you have to make a commitment to actually engage them and tell them the truth. Three, if you don't answer, you must say why you won't or can't. In other words, there are some legitimate reasons which you cannot answer or you don't want to answer a question, but you have to at least be honest and open about why you wouldn't answer. Number four, everything that is said to each other will be held in absolute confidence because it has to be a relationship of trust. If you're afraid that someone's going to go in and blab your, your business to the world, you're not going to ever share and have that depth of relationship. That has to be protected. There has to be trust there. 
And number five, we will make absolutely no judgments of each other. And really, we kind of, kind of qualify that as Christians and say this is about no condemnation. So there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ now. That's what the gospel says. It's from Romans. Uh, but we still have to be able to speak God's truth into them because wounds from a friend can be trusted. Wounds from a friend are a healing kind of a wound. So we still have to be able to speak the truth of the gospel into them. But, but this kind of friendship, if you ever have been in, in the kind of friendship where you can ask anything and you'll be truthful and there's a relationship of trust and safety there, these are incredibly fruitful relationships. This is where iron sharpens iron actually happens. This is what makes for the deep gospel-powered friendships. And those kind of friendships, deep gospel-centered friendships where we're sharpening each other, guiding us on the path of life, those kind of friendships can change the world. They really can See, I think probably a lot of us are kind of put off by thinking about someone knowing us that well, having that level of intimacy and that level of accountability with other people. But the truth is that we're made for this. The reason that we're put off for it, by and large, is because we don't actually want to face the hard stuff. But as Christians, we're freed from shame, we're freed from guilt to be able to come back and receive God's forgiveness and be able to be truth-speaking, truth-filled people. And when that happens, when we actually have these friendships developed in a context of love, it is a beautiful thing that not only fosters incredible growth in us as people, but it also is a powerful witness to those watching of the truth of the gospel. This is what really excites me about uh, friendships here. We can look at uh, what Jesus prays for his uh, followers at the, toward the end of the book of John, right before he heads uh, to the cross. He's praying for his own followers, and then, and then we get this. It's, it's, it's reminding us of, of what's at stake here and how we live together. This is from John 17. We'll start in verse 20. Jesus is praying to his Father, My prayer is not for them only, in other words, for his disciples only. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, in other words, you and I, that all of them may be one. This is how we live together, in unity. That they may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That's the missional aspect. The world is going to be watching and they'll see. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. In other words, how we live together as a community of believers makes a huge difference. There's a huge opportunity for people to see the gospel through these kind of relationships that we have with other people. If they see us walking together in unity, in trust, in honesty, in openness, asking the hard questions, being faithful through hard times and good times, they'll see the difference that this makes because there are not a lot of true friendships like this. This is one of the things that I, I really love about uh, the group of guys that, that I meet with uh, as part of my growth group. We, we're starting to develop those relationships, and we're not like perfectly formed and stuff like that, but, but these are relationships that are starting to bind us together. We've got people who are, are asking us the hard questions, people who are pointing us back to God's wisdom, telling, and as we, as we learn to live our lives, we're learning to do that together. It's iron sharpening iron. And the next stage of that is we really need to bring others in to be able to see what that Christian community really looks like. And we've not been fantastic about that. We've actually been kind of poor in a lot of ways about that. But I want my my non-Christian friends to be able to see the difference that the gospel has made in these relationships because there's a huge opportunity for them to see that and as a result to see God's beauty as he designed the church to be. So what Proverbs is saying about uh, friends is the right friends are huge. 
The right friends lead you on the path of life. And the result of that is an incredible witness to God's glory and grace in the gospel. So this is what Proverbs is saying about friends. You've got to have the right friends because they're pointing you closer to God. Now let's turn to what Proverbs is going to tell us about uh, neighbors. It shouldn't come as a surprise to us to find out that Proverbs uh, reveals that there are some pretty bad neighbors around. So Proverbs 11, verse 9. With their mouths, the godless destroy their neighbors, but through knowledge, the righteous escape. The next one we can see, Proverbs sixteen twenty-nine. A violent person entices their neighbor and leads them down a path that is not good. Proverbs 21.10. The wicked crave evil. Their neighbors get no mercy from them. See, the bad neighbor has no concern for anyone else around them. Sometimes their intent is actually actively malicious, and that's what we see here, that they are actively seeking out ill will toward the other person. They're, they're acting out the malice in their hearts toward other people. And if you've ever been around people like this, you know how miserable it is. When I was in junior high, I was you know, a little 5'4 kid and, and really nerdy. I was trying to be athletic and cool, but it just wasn't cool. It was really nerdy. I actually got bullied a lot in junior high, and it was a miserable thing. To go to class where I was around some of these people who, who were just acting out um, whatever was in their hearts toward me, it was a really miserable thing. I hated going to class. This is what bad neighbors do. The, the problem is they've got no concern for other people. And this can turn really ugly really quickly. Look at Proverbs 24, 28 and 29 when it becomes a, a matter of official testimony. Do not testify against your neighbor without cause. Would you use your lips to mislead? Do not say, I'll do to them as they have done to me. I'll pay them back for what they did. And sometimes we try to hide our ill will toward others or hide the, the lack of concern uh, toward others by, by just kind of careless joking. Well, Proverbs has something to say about that too in a memorable phrase in 26, uh, 18 and 19. Like a maniac shooting flaming arrows of death is one who deceives their neighbor and says, I was only joking. I mean, this is the kind of destruction that, that having a, a lack of concern for the people around you can really cause. I mean, think about that phrase, like flaming, like a maniac, just shooting wildly, these flaming arrows of death. That's what it's like to, to be uh, having no concern for others, to be just going around and deceiving them and say, hey, I'm, I'm just kidding, just joking, just careless joking here. Proverbs is helping us to see how destructive a bad neighbor can be. There's no concern for the other people, and that causes incredible harm. So we are given eyes in Proverbs to see this so that we can avoid that kind of behavior ourselves. Indeed, the wise person is actually going to be a good neighbor. They're actually going to be seeking out the good of the other. So we can look early on in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 27 and 28. This is the parent's instructions to the son. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to act. Do not say to your neighbor, Come back tomorrow and I'll give it to you when you already have it with you. Again, later on in the book, chapter 14, verse 21. It is a sin to despise one's neighbor, but blessed is the one who is kind to the needy. So what Proverbs is showing us is that a wise person, a person who lives by, by God's wisdom, is, is going to foster an openness toward the people who live around them to actively pursue their good and to want their good. In the same way, we shouldn't be out to get them. We saw a proverb about kind of retaliation. You shouldn't be looking for ill toward the other person. Instead, we should think the best of them. We should actually seek their good. And so Proverbs 17.9 says this, 
Whoever would foster love covers an offense, but whoever repeats the matter separates close friends. And, and that's not about hiding things. It's about assuming the best of the other person, knowing that you don't know the full picture and you want what's good for them. You're not out to, to give a bad report about them. You care about them. You want good for them. We're to people, we are to be people of grace who seek the good of the people around us. Now, if we want to learn how to apply the wisdom of Proverbs about neighbors, uh, we've got to look back at the teaching of Jesus as well and see how he taught us to live with those around us. So when he was asked about the greatest command, what did he say? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And the second great commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. He says the whole law, all the prophets stand on these two commands. But you and I, when we hear that, we say, okay, we understand that, that how we live toward our neighbors is crucial. It, it's a, a vital part of obeying God. It's central to obeying God. But we might want to justify ourselves and say, okay, well, well let's be really clear on what my responsibility is here. So, so who is my neighbor? And in fact, one of the experts in the law, when he correctly identified those two commands, love God, love neighbor, he wanted to justify himself, the Bible says, so he asks Jesus that very question, and who is my neighbor? And in response, Jesus uh, said one of the most famous stories he ever told. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the other place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse, him for, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. And so Jesus turns to the man and says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is that a neighbor is anyone that you come across who you can do good toward. A neighbor is anyone that you might run across in the course of your everyday life. The neighbor is, is actually the good Samaritan here, the one who is a neighbor to the one who is in need. That's who the neighbor is. A neighbor is someone who you come across. They might be a, a literal neighbor, someone who might live right next door to you, or they might be a coworker. They might be a classmate. They might be someone you just happen to walk into on the side of the street or at the grocery store or the gas station or somewhere else. Jesus is saying the same thing as Proverbs. A, a life lived under God's wisdom and the path of life is a life that's oriented to the good of the other person, even if you don't know them, even if they're a stranger, because they are your neighbor. They are your fellow human made in the image of God, someone for whom you can do good actively. So we need good friends to sharpen us, to point us on the path of God's wisdom. And we also, on the other side, when it comes to neighbors, need to seek actively seek the good of those who we come into contact with. And the Good Samaritan is the perfect example of what it means to be a good neighbor. He goes out of his way to care for this man, even takes care of his debts afterward. Now, as we consider how this applies in tangible ways to our lives here uh, in our community, I want to revisit our friend uh, Speedo Man for a moment. 
What I would like to tell you is that one of those dozens of times that I passed when he was outside, I stopped my car and I went and introduced myself, found out his name, uh, built a relationship with him, and then uh, years later he's uh, in the church worshiping God and, and uh, his yard's all cleaned up and everything. But the truth is that that didn't happen. I still only know him as Speedo Man. I don't even know his first name. I know nothing about this man other than what uh, appearances uh, show from his yard. So help me evaluate this. Was I a good neighbor to Speedo Man? Did I love him? Well, no, I didn't. I I found him odd and off-putting, at best a source of, of jokes within the family. Here's the thing. I believe that being a good neighbor is a huge opportunity for the gospel to spread, a huge opportunity for more people to come to know Jesus and to find life in him. And I've been trying to share that with you to try to convince you to engage your neighbors and engage your coworkers and your classmates and your friends because you've got to build relationships with them so that they can come to see that, that God is the greatest thing in all the world and they can come to find life in Jesus and to worship him alongside of us. But the hard thing about reading the Bible on a topic like this is when I look at my own life, I see that I'm I'm struggling to make that a reality. I believe it's true, but then when I look at how I'm actually living my day-to-day life, I'm living as if I don't believe it's true. Uh, my wife and I, our family, moved a mile west of church here at the end of January. And all through this eight-month-long house-hunting process, and we were questioning God and praying to him and all these things, all through that we were, we were saying that, that we want to move into a neighborhood where we can actually get to know our neighbors well because we, we're introverts. We need to have people around us. We need to be uh, seeking those connections because our previous neighbors, when we lived over at the Parsonage, were basically a few uh, deer and some chipmunks and then our own church and then St. Simon's across the way. We just didn't really have any immediate neighbors. So we were saying, well, we want to get into a neighborhood to really get to know the people around us. And as we saw God's hand in that whole house hunting process, we, we praised him for the ways he shut some doors and opens other doors, and we're so thankful for his provision for us. We're thankful for the house we have, for the neighborhood we have, and all this. We've been in our house for five months now, and here's what I've done to engage my neighbors. I had a 15-minute conversation with one neighbor when he was out snowblowing his yard. I was walking home and, and stopped and chatted to him. Uh, second, uh, a neighbor across the way saw us pull in one day, and she actually came over and engaged us, and we met her, found out who she was a little bit and that stuff. And uh, third, uh, I once had a very casual hi-bye kind of conversation with her at the mailbox when hers is right next to mine. Five months. I don't even know the first name of the person who shares a fence with me on the side. I mean, honestly, this is really embarrassing for me. I'm, I'm terrible at this. I, I'm, I'm seeing what Proverbs is saying. I'm seeing God's wisdom here. I'm thinking... Well, how can I preach that when I'm not living it? I'm not leading by example here. I, I'm honestly really embarrassed. I want to give, a, give you excuses of, well, this is why I've got other situations. But the truth is, the cold, hard reality is that I'm not living by Jesus' call to love my neighbor when it comes to those who are in cl- closest proximity to me. Now, what gives me hope, what encourages me, is that I've heard from you. Some of you are doing this so much better than I am, and I'm so glad for that. I'm glad God has given us the church where some people are, are less, uh, uh, I don't know, less foolish, less, uh, more courageous than me that actually go and, and engage their neighbors. And actually, uh, my mom uh, and my dad, they, they moved to a new house last summer, and she's been listening to my sermons, and she really caught the vision of this last summer. She's been telling me on the phone every week, oh, I've met this neighbor, and this is who they are. And I'm thinking, she's more of an introvert than I am, and she's taking this on, and it's an, a beautiful thing. And I've talked to some of you, and you guys have some of these stories too. You'll do a block party, you'll invite someone over, you're finding out who your neighbors are. 
And I really do believe this is a huge gospel opportunity, but I'm asking you now to hold me accountable as my, as my friends, as my church family. I, I'm asking if you would to, to pray for me, pray that God would give me opportunities and that I would actually take the opportunities, have the courage to go see that, yes, this is an opportunity to engage my neighbors and actually get out of the door and, and meet these people because they need Jesus. They really do. There are people all around us who desperately need Jesus. They've been hurt by the kind of bad relationships that the, the book of Proverbs warns against. They've been hurt by a sin-sick world. They're discouraged. They're downtrodden because they live in a fallen world, a world where sin is ever-present and death is a reality. They need hope. They need the gospel. And you and I are ambassadors of Christ, pointing them with our lives, with our friendships, getting into their lives, building relationships with them. We can point them toward the source of hope and life. And this, the takeaway from Proverbs is really in line with our vision as a church, if you think about it. The mission that we have is to, to make more and stronger disciples of Jesus. And if that's going to happen, relationships are the key to that. And the book of Proverbs makes that pretty clear. Relationships are so crucial to our growth as followers of Christ, as people who obey God. So on the one hand, we need deep relationships with true friends who can help to sharpen us to become stronger disciples of Jesus, people who love him more and more all the time and who learn to live all of life under the reign of Christ. And on the other hand, we need to, be go, to go and be good neighbors to those we come into contact with in the course of our everyday lives so that more people would come to hear the life-changing message of Jesus. We've got a phrase that I've also been really bad about kind of keeping in front of us, growing community to reach the community or building community to reach the community. And this is really that same vision. It's saying building community. That's about uh, us becoming stronger, getting into each other's lives, having those true, deep relationships where, where the gospel can really take root more in our lives so that our love for Christ will grow. And on the other side, it's, it's about reaching the community. In other words, reaching the community for Christ, showing people the light of Christ, the beauty of God, so that they too would come to treasure him and to worship him alongside of us. You and I get to participate in the greatest mission that anyone could ever have. We get to tell people the best news that has ever been told, that God loves them so much that even though that they are sinners who are far from God, who are living in darkness and death, even though that is true, God loved them so much that he sent his own son to suffer and to die for them. And the result is that they can have life, not death, but life, no longer steeped in darkness, but walking in light. No more shame, no more fear, no more pain. Living in Christ. This is where life is found. But we need each other for this to happen. I know I desperately need you to, to support me and encourage me and to spur me on, kind of give me a kick in the pants to actually go and, and be ambas an ambassador for Christ. So may God in his grace grow in our hearts a contagious love for his son Jesus so that you and I will joyfully take up this wonderful task of spreading the good news of Jesus to others, that more and more people would come to worship God alongside of us. And the good part this morning is that we have the Lord's table before us this morning, which reminds us of the fact that the whole reason we are here is because of what God has done for us. It's not because somehow we've discovered some secret to life or, or some kind of secret to finding uh, the right way with God. No, it's, it's the message that God himself came down. He stooped to our level. He sent his son into the world to change reality for all of us. We are here because of what God has done. Jesus is everything to us, and that's what we celebrate when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. 
The fact that Jesus has done everything needed, anything else that might, might attract our attention, might call us away from that, it's nothing compared to what God has done for us in Jesus. Jesus is incredible. He is amazing. He is the, the treasure of your heart. When you discover him, you will discover life forever. So as we come back to the table this morning, remember what Christ has done for you. Remember that, that he is the source of life. He is where joy is found. As we come to the table, please pray with me. Father, we are thankful for the bread and for the cup. And we pray that these elements will provide more than just physical nourishment. I pray that you would grant us, your church, the peace and the unity and the spiritual nourishment that the bread symbolizes. We pray that that you would make the cup speak again of the blood that Christ shed for the forgiveness of sin. And for us, your people, we pray that you would cleanse us, that you would consecrate us again as we take this meal together. And with joy, we eagerly await the day that we will eat it with you in the kingdom of heaven when Christ comes to restore all things. It's in his name, the name of Christ the King, that we pray. Amen.